me start. I'm going to read the portion from Acts chapter 2. It's actually going to come up on the screen, so don't worry about 10 and there. We'll be really familiar with this passage and just listen out to, in particular, how we hear of this early church gathering and devoting themselves to this meal, the Lord's Supper or the breaking of bread. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their needs, the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let me just pray again. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is truth. Thank you for how you lead us through your word. Thank you, Jesus, that that in you we find life. And in all that you have done, we find the way to live in that life. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you guide us in that way. We thank you for how you illuminate the scriptures to help us see the glory of the Son. We pray that you would do that this afternoon. We thank you that these aren't just words that we read. We thank you that this this passage that we've read and as we read on in 1 Corinthians, these words are living, they are active, they are sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would change us, not for our glory, but for the glory of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we have talked a lot uh, over the last few weeks just about the reality of the world that we live in. The reality of this world being a broken world, a world where all of us, whether we're Christians or not, contend against our flesh, battle against sin. And we know, again, whether we're Christians or not, that that it is difficult to live in this world. We come in here on a Sunday afternoon at four o'clock and some of us are battered. Like I can see it in some of your faces. We're exhausted. We're weary from contending against the brokenness of the world. We're weary from battling against sin through the week. So often in the Bible, we're given a picture of God's people living in the life that we have now, being something like walking through the wilderness. We're going to hear more about that in a few weeks as we start the Exodus story. Or or walking through something that's like a desert. I'm sure not many of us have experienced walking through a desert, but we've seen animals who, who struggle in that way, haven't we? We've seen how they are desperate for, for water. They're desperate for nourishment. And we see what it looks like when they can't find that. Their strength is sapped. Their focus is shifted. They make reckless decisions like drinking from, from dirty pools of water. And it seems like as they're walking through the desert, walking through the wilderness, everything around them is trying to draw life out of them. And that is what the Christian life feels like so often. Sunday to Sunday, it feels like that so often. It feels like as we step out of these doors, like this is a high point in the week this Sunday afternoon. It is. The gathering of God's people is the high point in the week. But not long after we walk out of these doors, it feels like the world is pushing against us. It feels like our own flesh is pushing against us and it exhausts us. And it brings us back here on a four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, weary again. 
tie it again. Praise God that we have a God who is full of grace. Grace being a gift that we don't deserve. Our God is full of grace. And he desires to to give good gifts to us. And we talk about God's attributes, his characteristics being communicable or not communicable. So the things that that are communicable are the things that that he passes on towards us. So his love, his peace, his joy, his kindness, all of those things. But there are things that that God doesn't pass on because he's eternal. So his his, um, all-knowingness or or that he is present everywhere or all-powerful. Like he doesn't pass those things on to us, but he does pass on so much of who he is. He's gracious. And his grace is his love coming towards us, his peace coming towards us, the joy that he has, the kindness that he has coming towards us. These are all things that we don't deserve. But God extends them towards us. That is grace. And sometimes when we think of the grace of God and us receiving grace, we think maybe that grace just, just happens like a, I don't know, we pray that God would be gracious and, it, and we just receive it. It's like a, a lightning bolt moment. That isn't how God works at all. It's like God is a, a cosmic vending machine that we kind of put some money in the slot and we choose which, which uh, kind of part, part of his, his grace that we want. I'll just have a bit of love today and we press the button and, and automatically we feel like the love of God. That isn't how God's grace works. God is a personal God and he communicates his grace to us. He communicates those attributes of love, joy, peace, all of the things that he wants to give us. He communicates them towards us through what we call means of grace. So these are ways that that he channels his grace towards us. So God is a God of grace and we want to receive his grace. And it's not like we just snap our fingers and we receive it. There are channels that he uses to, to bring those things to us. And these things make his presence feel so tangible. So so prayer is a means of grace. Like, you know what I mean? Like when you pray, you, you just have a tangible sense of God's presence. You know his love. You know his power when you pray. God's word is a means of grace. It's one of those channels of God passing and flowing his attributes towards us. So when we're in God's word, we we find peace. We know the love of God. We saw last week, this gathering, you guys are a means of grace to each other. You are a channel of God uh, communicating his love towards each other. So, So the love of God we feel when we come along each other, that is God using us as a means of grace a way that he's channeling his grace towards us. And here's another, this table. That is a means of grace. That is a way that he's channeling his grace towards us. It is a way that his presence becomes so tangible to us. And this table has been central to the Christian church ever since it was formed for that very reason. Because when we gather around this table, we receive grace from God and we enjoy his presence. So being devoted to the breaking of bread, as we heard in Acts chapter 2 that the early church were, being devoted to the breaking of bread or the Lord's Supper or communion, whatever you call it, is being devoted to a weekly rhythm of receiving grace from God. That's what it is. The early church, the apostles, they, they gathered around this table frequently. It was precious to them. And throughout church history, you see men and women wrestling and fighting to preserve this table for what it is, a means of grace, a way of God sustaining his church, giving us his grace until Jesus returns and we will be with him forever. 
We need this table, folks. We need it. We need to come and we need to eat and feast around it week after week. Because it feels as we step out of this door like we are walking out into the desert. We are walking into the wilderness. So the reality is we live, Christians, the church, we live in this, in this time of tension between two meals. So in the Bible, as you look in Genesis, you see that the Bible starts with a meal. And then at the end, in the book of Revelation, it ends with a meal. The first meal that we read of in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 is tragic. So in Genesis chapter 1, you see Adam and Eve are in the garden and they have everything they could ever want. The presence of God is with them and all of his provision is around them. They don't need anything. And yet they're dissatisfied. It's not enough for them. They want more. They want to rule themselves. And instead of feasting on God and feasting on their creator, they they decide to feast on stuff and feast on the created instead. And so they take fruits from the tree of the knowledge of God and evil. God said, don't touch it. But they take from it and they feast. This first meal, this first feast that we read of, this act of rebellion severed the perfect union between God and humanity, between each other, between us and creation. This first meal that we read of in Genesis chapter 3 is the reason that sin frustrates us day after day. That first meal that we read of is the reason that Russian troops are arming themselves on the borders of Ukraine at the moment. That first meal is the reason that sexism exists, racism exists, social injustice exists. That first meal is the reason that we battle with anxiety and depression and addictive behaviours that destroy us. The result of that first meal was that death and sin reigned over humanity. And at the end of the Bible, we read of another meal. In the book of Revelation, John the Apostle has a vision of a meal. He sees it like a, a wedding banquet, like the best wedding banquet you've ever been to. And who is the host? Jesus. Jesus is the host of this meal, and he prepares a table. And there is room for everyone in the family of God. And John describes what this meal looks like. And it's a beautiful picture of diversity. There are people from every corner of the earth. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue is there around this table. And God is present. He is there. And his people are enjoying his presence and enjoying this feast. At this meal, Satan has been crushed. Death is dead and sin is broken. Two meals. And the church of Jesus Christ live in between. We live in between these two meals. We live in this this feeling of being in the wilderness, of being in the desert in between. And we live in this tension of slavery to our sin being behind us. And kind of looking ahead and seeing, seeing the sea, seeing where we're heading to. We see in front of us, but we're not quite there yet. We live in this tension between the meals. And so God in his grace gives us another meal. Right in the middle. He gives us the Lord's Supper. He gives us the breaking of bread. And this meal for us is like, it's like an oasis in the desert. 
It's like an anchor in our storm. It's a meal of remembrance and of celebration. It's a meal that helps us as we journey from that first meal to the last meal. It's a means of grace to sustain us until Jesus returns. So the early church devoted themselves to it. They would gather every week and share this meal together. And they wouldn't share it like we share it. They would, they would have an actual meal. Like this would be part of a larger meal. They would have these love feasts where all the church would come together and they would enjoy this meal together as part of a wider feast. But just like with any good gift, the way that they celebrated in Acts chapter 2 and the, the beauty that we see in Acts chapter 2, it didn't take long for for this good gift to be distorted and this good gift to be tainted. We read of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read the portion to us from verse 17 all the way down to verse 34. This is the Apostle Paul speaking and he says this to the church in Corinth. In the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better. But for the worse, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink it? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. But the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup. After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the law, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the brothers. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come about, uh, come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So here's what's happening in the church in Corinth. Every week they would gather together for a feast. And it was a feast for the whole church. And this church was diverse. It was a a collection of people from all parts of walks of life, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different wealth profiles. And they would come together for this feast. But what was happening is that the rich rich Christians could, it was almost like they could get off work early and they would go and get uh, the best food, the best drink that they would come. And they would come and they would feast together and they would make a head start. And they would eat all of the good food, in fact, all of the food. And by the time the poorer people got off work and arrived for the meal, all the food was gone. And they found their brothers and sisters or supposed brothers and sisters in Christ indulged on all of this rich food and some of them even drunk. There was nothing left for them. What happens in Corinth is this meal of grace became a meal of division. 
This table with all of its beauty became shrouded in anger and pain and frustration. And so Paul writes to address the church and he's desperate to reveal again the beauty of the breaking of bread to show them that this is a means of grace. This is a gift from God. This isn't about saving grace. This is God giving us what we need to live well in the wilderness and look what it's become. And so just as Paul does for the church in Corinth, I just want to unpack for us briefly just six truths, six wonderful truths about what this table truly is. The first thing is this. Verse 24, you see that it is a meal of thanksgiving. Paul says that Jesus broke bread and he gave thanks. This is the night that Jesus was betrayed. He hasn't hasn't walked to the cross yet, but he sees beyond what is coming. The cup of God's wrath is still to be poured out for him. The resurrection is still to come, but he looks ahead and he is filled with joy and he gives thanks. Now just figure this, he gives thanks that his body will be broken. That's incredible. Jesus, who is about to go to the cross and bear the full weight of our sin, gives thanks for it because he knows what will be his reward. You and I. Isn't that wonderful? So just as Jesus gives thanks for this meal, so should we. Some people in some traditions call this meal the Eucharist. Eucharist literally means thanksgiving. It's a meal of happiness. And so when we come to this meal, folks, We can come and give thanks. We can come happy. We can take this meal happy in the knowledge that we know the power of the cross and the love of our Saviour towards us. It's a meal of thanksgiving. Secondly, it's a meal of unity. Let me read verse 24 to us again. He gave thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. When we break this bread, And we're deliberate in the way that we break it. We break it so we can see it being broken. And there's bits of bread fall to the floor and it's messy and it's visual. This act of breaking bread shows us and reminds us of Jesus' body which was ripped apart. Reminds us of his body which was broken. When we take of the wine and the cup, we remember the process of wine being made. Grapes are pressed and they are crushed and they are ripped apart. And so when we drink from the cup, remember that Jesus' body was broken. His body was crushed for our sins. The breaking of bread, the drinking of wine is evocative. It is an evocative picture of Jesus' body being broken for us, the church. It is a reminder of his physical body being broken so that his spiritual body might be made whole. Back a chapter in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, Paul says this, there is one bread and we who are many are one body. We take from one loaf and if we could, but we know that we can't, we would take from one cup. That is a powerful visual reminder of our togetherness. So some of us call this communion. And communion is literally a word that means coming together. The coming together of people. Fellowship. As we take this meal, we're reminded of our unity. We're reminded that we are one. We're together. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, when you draw near to this table, 
Like if any of us feel lonely, if any of us feel rejected or cut off or isolated, as you come to this table, remember that you are united to every Christian in this room. You are united to the Apostle Paul. You are united to to Ruth, to Boaz, to, to Moses, to Abraham. You are united to all of the saints who have gone before you. You don't take this meal alone. You might walk in through those doors alone, but you are not alone. And this is a powerful reminder that you are united to the body of Jesus because you are united to Christ who is the head of this body. That's why, folks, our conviction is we don't take this in our seats. We come up together and we share it together. We feast together. We take it as one. That's why we encourage each other to pray for each other because this is an act of unity. We take from one loaf, we take from one cup because we are united through Jesus to one another. It's a meal of unity. Next, it's a meal of Christ's presence. I just want to spend a a little bit more time on this one because this this has been the cause of contention for hundreds of years. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16. Just turn there with me so you can see this and read this because this verse, it's caused a lot of uh, division and a lot of um, shrouds being covered over this table. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And he's rhetorical. The answer is, yes, it is. He's saying as we come to this table, we participate in the body and the blood of Christ. Now, understanding what Paul means here, understanding what the Spirit means as he speaks through Paul is so important because this has been misconstrued by many over the years. So the Roman Catholic tradition would say what Paul meant when he wrote it, they would say that, the, that when, the peace, when the priest blesses the bread and blesses the wine, it mysteriously transforms into the literal blood and flesh of Jesus. So it's no longer bread and wine. It's literally Jesus' flesh and Jesus' blood. That's what you eat in your mouth. So you're feasting literally on Jesus' body and Jesus' blood. That's what they call transubstantiation. Now in the 1500s, Martin Luther, who many, Martin Luther, who many of us uh, will have heard of, he starts pushing against the Catholic Church. He's uncomfortable with a lot of things that are going on in Roman Catholicism. And so he tries to swing the pendulum back to where Scripture says this meal should be. And so he reads Paul's instructions there that we participate in, in the body and the blood of Jesus. And this is what he thinks. He says, well, we're not literally eating. We can't literally eat the body and blood of Jesus but we must be doing something. So the way he interprets it was, was Jesus' body is physically present in this meal, but not in the bread, not in the wine. So we eat it, but he's, his, his body is kind of around the meal or, or, or under the meal or over it. And now if you're kind of sitting there thinking, what on earth is he talking about? <laughs> so is everyone else. Like, like, it just doesn't make sense. Consubstantiation is what Luther called it. Now, here's the problem with the Roman Catholic and the Lutheran position. Both of them rely on Jesus' physical body, his physical human body being here. And also being over the roads at that church. And also being at Egbeth Community Church down there. And also being at Cornstone Church over there. Now, that just can't happen. Because where is Jesus' human body right now? At the right hand of the Father. He hasn't got multiple bodies that he can send every Sunday to all the different locations. across. That, that is impossible. In his humanity, he is in one place, ascended to the right hand of the Father. 
Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, another chap around in the 1500s. These are good names, aren't they? Good baby names, Julie. Luther Zwingli, and we'll get another even better one in a minute. Now, he saw what was going on. He saw the Roman Catholic Church. He saw what the Lutherans were trying to do, and he was troubled by it. And so he tried to swing the pendulum, but it kept on going to the other end. And what Zwingli said was, there is nothing supernatural that is going on here. Christ isn't present at all. When we come and we feast at this table, it's just a memorial. That's what he said. There's nothing mysterious. There's nothing happening around when we take this meal. We just take it as a memorial. Now, a lot of us will probably be more comfortable with that than what Luther said, certainly what the Roman Catholic Church said. And maybe some of us grew up in a bit of that tradition where we just came to the breaking of bread and it was just a memorial. It felt like a funeral service. Like I certainly remember that when I was growing up. The problem is that isn't true either. As we take this meal, Jesus is present and he is doing a supernatural work. So here's the last baby named Julie, John Calvin. Go for Calvin rather than John. John's overused. John Calvin around the same time, he's looking at what his friends in the Roman Catholic Church are doing. He's looking at the Lutherans and the Zwinglians and he sees that all of them, all of them are depriving the church of a meal that was intended to be a a means of grace. A means of grace to sustain us in this wilderness. And so what Calvin said as he read these verses from 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16, he said, yes, there is some symbolism going on here. But there is also a real physical sense that God is doing something. What he said is, as we eat and drink this meal, it is not that Christ comes down to us physically. He can't do that. It's that we are drawn up into his presence by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we are present with Christ. Not that he comes down, but we are drawn up to him. And we participate with him in this meal. And as we are in the presence of Christ, he feeds us with everything that was robbed from us in the first meal. He feeds us with peace. He feeds us with joy. He feeds us with love. He feeds us with everything that we need for life and peace. And so as we take this meal, it is Jesus who is inviting us to this table. It is Jesus that is inviting us into his presence. He's inviting us in so that we can draw all that we need from him for life and peace. So if we approach this table, folks, Jesus says, is anyone hungry? Are you tired from eating from the empty tables of the world this week? Is anyone thirsty? Your souls parched from drinking from the dirty wells of the world this week. If you're hungry, if you're thirsty, come to me. And when you come, take this bread, take this wine. Take it in acknowledgement that you are tired of feasting on creative things and instead feast on me. And that is what we do. We don't feast on him physically, we feast on him spiritually as we are drawn into his presence. There is something supernatural, there is something profound that happens as we take this meal in the presence of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a meal of presence. Next, it's a meal of remembrance. Back in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let me just read verse 24 to us again. This is my body which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. In the same way, he took a cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Why do we take this meal every week? Because we forget. Nine o'clock tomorrow morning, we will have forgotten the closeness and the beauty of the gospel that we get to enjoy right now. Nine o'clock tomorrow morning, in the business of life, we will have forgotten the beauty of the, the tangible presence of Christ that we get to enjoy as we take this bread and take this wine. And so we need to be reminded again, week after week, as we come to this table, we are reminded afresh every Sunday that our slavery to sin is broken. We are reminded afresh that our shame has been removed. We are reminded afresh that our wrath The wrath of God due to us has been absorbed. We are reminded again that we have been cleansed from our sin. We are reminded again that we are freed from Satan's sin and death. We are reminded again that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. So I or someone else, one of the guys, stand here and preach to you each week. But as you take these emblems in your hand, this for you is a visible sermon. A visible sermon. And you are preaching the gospel to yourself. As you hold that bread and hold the wine and see it, you are reminded of Jesus' body broken for you, his blood shed for you. It is a visible sermon. It is a meal of remembrance. Next verse 26, Paul says it is a meal of proclamation. He says that we proclaim this. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This meal is evocative. It evokes the gospel, the beauty of the gospel. We know that the gospel isn't just for us. Like it's not just a personal thing. It's for more than us. And so when we take this meal, we proclaim our confidence in the power of the gospel. We proclaim that to ourselves, but we also proclaim it to one another. But we also proclaim it to, to those who aren't Christians. If you're not a Christian, as you're watching us, as we take this meal, you watch us as we confess that we are as as messed up as you are. We are sinners like you are. We are exhausted from the brokenness of the world, but we have put our hope in Jesus. And this meal draws us to remember that hope. It's a meal of proclamation. And finally, it is a meal of hopeful longing. Again, in verse 26, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. This meal is set between the first meal and the last meal. The cross has freed us from slavery to sin and death. The resurrection has brought us into the eternal family of God, but we are not there yet. We haven't tasted the fullness of the glory of the finished work of the cross yet. And so, and so for now, we live by faith. We will struggle week to week and we will contend against the darkness of the world week to week. But we take this meal and hope that one day we won't. One day all of our struggles will be gone. So we take this meal looking back to our redemption and looking forward to our eternal welcome. And we long for that day. We long for that day with hope. This is a meal of thanksgiving, a meal of unity. A meal of presence, a meal of remembrance, a meal of proclamation, and a meal of hope. And so as we prepare to come to this table, how do we take it? How should we approach the breaking of bread? 
But Paul says in verse 27, we approach it, we take this meal, not in an unworthy manner. Don't take it lightly. This is a meal of enjoying a grace from God as we come into his presence. And so first, this meal is only to be taken by those who have that fellowship with God. Those who've been redeemed from their sin, those who by faith have been born again and brought into the family of God. That is those who can approach the table. That is what it is to come in a worthy manner. It's first of all, coming and having fellowship with God. It also means examining yourself. That's how we approach this table. Verse 28, he tells us to examine ourselves. And so if you're not a Christian, you should do that. Examine yourself. Ask yourself, where are you finding life? How are the tables of the world, the feasts of the world serving you? Food in comparison to the gospel is tasteless, so often poisonous and empty in what it offers. Maybe it's time that you heard Jesus call and came to him. The only one who's able to give you life and turn away from your sin and put your faith in Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and his power to forgive. But if you are a Christian, you too are to examine yourself. We should be at peace with one another. It says in verse 34 that we should wait for one another. That's an instruction for the church in Corinth, but it's also an instruction for us. This is a family meal, folks, to be taken in unity. We celebrate our union with Christ, but we also celebrate our union with each other. And so where there is tension in any relationship in this gathering, before we come to this table, it is time to resolve it. Husbands, this is a great time to apologise to your wives. Don't come and eat from this table unless you've done that. Wives, this is a great time to apologise to your husbands. Again, don't come to this feast unless you've done that. This is a great time to ask forgiveness of someone if you spoke wrongly to them or gossiped about them through the week. Examine yourselves and approach this table with hearts full of wonder, ready to receive from Jesus. We eat between the feasts, folks, in the real presence of Christ as we are taken up to him by the power of the Spirit. And if you have faith in Jesus, this table is open to come and feast. Let's pray. Father, we, we confess because it is so obvious that we don't deserve anything from you. And so we thank you that you are a gracious father. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who has given us this meal. Thank you for the gift of your spirit who draws us up into his presence. And we confess, Father, we find this life hard. As soon as we step out of these doors, it is a battle for us. This life exhausts us, it drains us. We feel weary from the battle with sin. We feel heavy with the brokenness of the world. And so we ask as we come to this feast, you would feed us. And as your spirit draws us into your presence through your son, we ask that you would fill our hearts with thanksgiving that you've done everything needed to forgive us of our sin. You've done everything needed to crush Satan's work in our life and defeat death. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to the unity that we have with you and with each other. Bring to our remembrance who you are and who you've made us to be. 
And as we break this bread and lift up this cup, we ask that you would help us to preach the gospel to ourselves, to preach the gospel to our hearts. And would you, by the power of your spirit, draw our gaze with hope towards the final meal, towards that day when we will sit with you in your perfect presence, in the fullness of joy and eternal rest. We long for that day, Father. We love you, Jesus. We pray in your name and for your glory. Amen.